The View of Heaven is the title of message number three of Dr. Joel Hunter's series, The Church and the World of the Future, a study of the book of Revelation. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's scripture text is Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And now, let's begin. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Lord Jesus, we have come this morning to worship You, to see You alone in all of Your glory, in all of Your splendor. Father, we pray that You would remove from our heads and our hearts the distractions that we carry into this room with us. We pray that You would free us for this time, that truly the doors of heaven would be opened, and that we would see not as spectators, but as fellow worshipers who come this morning not to initiate worship, but to join the worship that is already in progress around Your throne. We've come this morning to humble ourselves, to glorify You. We pray You will, will enable us to do that. We ask for that in the name of the One who makes it possible, Jesus. And for His sake, Amen. You may be seated. Oh 
who used his words to lay out the foundations of the earth, who sent his son so men born dead could have a second birth. Jehovah, Father, mighty King, sustainer of my soul. He reigns in golden splendor.
it be like to be an ordinary person ushered into the presence of God in the surroundings of heaven. That was John's experience. To not have to be physically dead before you could experience and see from the vantage point of heaven. Hopefully this morning we will begin to erase those lines also. Hopefully we will be the beneficiaries of John, or the, benef- the, yeah, the beneficiaries of John who handed to us the beginnings of the insight of heaven. You know, those of you who read this week may have stumbled over some of the images of this book. The chapters now begin to become highly symbolic. And so, to begin this, before we get to the broader points, I want to take you through some of the technicalities so that you will not stumble over those. Those would rather be a help to you. And I want to begin to explain to you some of what these things uh, stand for. Uh, now they are on your uh, um, sheets. Uh, some of the some of the details are on your uh, worship outlines. But we have another problem. It is very difficult for us to read these kind of images and really visualize these, even though uh, most of us belong to a visual society. So what we've done is we have uh, gone to the archa- archives. Uh, um, by way of a book that uh, was in the University of Miami library. And we have pulled out of that a painting by an unknown artist, immodestly calling himself the master of the vision of St. John. This painting was painted in 1450. And what it does is it gives us just a a place to start uh, with uh, taking care of some of the details of the imagery so that we can begin to understand the broader viewpoints and the the broader uh, uh, purposes. Would you put that uh, picture up there? And let me just go through some of these details with you that you may have have wondered about. Uh, Let us first show you just the whole picture. You you notice the the rainbow that surrounds, I think that's in verse uh, 3 of the fourth chapter, talks about the halo or or the rainbow that surrounds the throne uh, and he who sits on the throne. I want you to notice the, the four creatures, the four living beings. I think the, the uh, Greek is zoe. It means 
It doesn't even mean creatures. It, it, it means uh, beings or living things. Uh, the, the word is tetramorphs. Uh, the tetramorph. And, and uh, in Ezekiel, it's, it's just like one animal almost. Uh, it's connected. The, the elders, the four and twenty elders that surround the throne, and we'll, we'll get to them in just a moment, but I want you to, to begin to, um, to see right now the pattern of this thing. Usually when we go to, to Revelation, we think of the projection of what we have seen on earth into heaven. I want you to go from just the opposite angle of this and begin to think of what is in heaven being the blueprint for the details that are down here on earth. Now, I'll say this again to you in a little while, but, I, but there are 24 elders, and many times people would say, well, uh, that would stand for uh, the 12 patriarchs plus the 12 apostles, because uh, 12 is the, is, the, is the symbol of perfect government, uh, spiritual government, and therefore that's who that would represent. Well, that can't be because the apostle John is the one who's has this vision, and, and John would have to be looking at himself here. Now, what I'm trying to say is that that's the opposite viewpoint. We get the divisions that we have on earth from the patterns that are in heaven. Uh, we get uh, the 24 divisions of the priests, by the way, uh, uh, from that pattern of the 24 ruling elders that have ruled there for an eternity. Uh, you can find those, by the way, in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. Uh, I want you to see that the, the, that uh, uh, the different numbers uh, point to the symmetry of how God has arranged the earth after the pattern of how He's arranged heaven. So go to the go to the next slide. This is a painting of, by Raphael uh, in 1518 of the first chapter of Ezekiel. Uh, you will see the ox and the lion and uh, the one who has the face of a person, and uh, the eagle here. They are escorting the Lord or the Spirit. Uh, th- there are also two cherubs, cherubim, uh, through the skies. It says wherever uh, the Spirit wanted to go, that's where they went. Now again, I, I point this out, and if you could see uh, this painting, um, Ezekiel's down here on the banks of the river, you know, just hardly distinguishable. Um, I want you to see this, again, for the purposes... Many of you who are familiar with Scripture think that, well, St. John saw this in heaven because he knew the Scripture of Ezekiel, and therefore he projected this image into heaven. No, it's just the opposite. When John got to heaven, when he saw the scene of heaven, he said to himself, ah, now I see what Ezekiel saw. Now I know where that comes from. Next slide. We'll begin to take uh, just a few sections of this larger picture. At the bottom of the throne, in this outer uh, rainbow, you see the seven lampstands. We, last week we went through the seven lamps, which are the churches, for the judgment of the churches. Lamps, of course, be, representing the light of the world. The stars uh, can represent uh, the, uh, um, uh, the angels. So there are innumerable stars, myriads of, of heavenly beings singing. The, the seven symbol, symbolizing, again, spiritual perfection. And you see this number all through scriptures. The sections of scriptures are broken up into the seven. The days of the week, there are seven days of the week God rested on the seventh. The, the Jubilee is uh, 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 the, uh, what is it, seventh year and then seven times seven. And how many are we to forgive one another? Seventy times seven. And, and uh, we are redeemed by the blood of Christ who shed his blood for us. 
that covers us in righteousness. How many, probably none of you have ever stopped to think about this before, but how many places from his body did he bleed for us? Two in his feet, two in his hands. Remember when he was whipped on his back? Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, he sweated until great drops of blood came from his forehead? Pierced in his side while he was on the cross. Seven places he bled for us. And so you begin to see the symmetry that these things on earth are a pattern of heaven. That is uh, uh, witnessed to uh, by uh, uh, the scripture in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, uh, verse 5, where it says, and these are the patterns and the shadows of the things that are in heaven. Next uh, slide. I want you to see the Lamb, of course, uh, standing for Jesus, who is about to be able to to, to uh, open the seven seals on the book. If this were painted in the first century, that would be a scroll, but it's painted in the 15th century. Um, I want you to see this, the, the, the symbols on his head for seven horns, perfect power, seven eyes, uh, the, the perfect insight, omniscience, uh, perfect ability to see. The creatures, uh, the living beings, rather, uh, have uh, the imperfect number of wings. They are not like Christ. Uh, they have six, and, they, and the, the wings are full of the eyes. See the eyes there? Um, uh, again, symbolizing insight. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Now, these are, the, these are the elders that surround the throne, and I just want to tell you a couple of things. First of all, you can see on their heads the crowns. By the way, in, in the Greek, this is not uh, diademata. You know, this is not the diadem. We should bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. Um, the diadem was the crown of royalty. And God wears that crown. This is Stephanoi. These is, this is the crown of victory. This, these are the crowns of victors. And so, therefore, those of, who are doing intercession for us in heaven, you know, are, are praying that we will overcome that we will have the victory. These uh, uh, saints in their white robes, of course, have these vials full of the incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember when I preached to you a few weeks ago that your prayers don't just go away. They don't just disappear. They are resident and accumulative in heaven. Those are the prayers of the saints, which is the incense. You smelled some of that incense this morning. Uh, these are the harps, which... Uh, tell us that there is music in heaven, and I'll, uh, I'll get on to that a little bit later. Okay, uh, next slide. We're going to go back to the original slide uh, just to see if I've missed anything. Any questions out there? Okay, okay, let's, let me talk for a little bit. When we have understood that all of the details in heaven have patterns to them, that they are understandable, and when we have understood that we have approached heaven from the wrong perspective, heaven is not a projection of what is on earth. Earth is a shadow of what is in heaven. When we realize that there is a symmetry of the world, then that will put us to the first point in understanding these two chapters. And the first point is this. If you will turn with me, if you have your scriptures with you, to Revelation chapter 4. It says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, 
And the first voice, which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, let me give you an overall perspective here, an overall perspective change, as it were. And then I'll get to that first point. God wants us to be able to see as he sees. He wants us to have the mind of Christ. He wants us to be able, uh, as Elisha's servant, to take a second look at the world. Because when you take a first look, it is very discouraging. It is very disparaging. And so, as we are about to face the trials that will come our way, as we're about to face the tribulations that Revelation will teach us about, as we have just come from the churches that are in decadence and have sources of corruption, before we get to this thing where we say, okay, I'm going to fix the world on my own, God says, wait a minute. There is a giant part missing. I don't want you to rush off on your own and try to correct anything. Before... You have my eyes. Before you see like I see. Before you see what I see. Do you remember in 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elisha and his servant were surrounded by the enemies? They woke up one morning and they walked out. And Elisha just sitting there looking. And his servant is absolutely panicked. Because the enemy during the night, has entirely surrounded their camp. They don't have a chance. And the servant says, what are we going to do? And Elisha's standing there being cool. What do you mean, what are we going to do? And he says, look at this. And Elisha realized he couldn't see the things of heaven. So Elisha prayed, oh God, open my servant's eyes. The part that he didn't put on there says, so he could see what I see. And the servant looked again, and surrounding the enemy forces were all of the forces of heaven. That's what God wants for you. That's the vision of heaven. To take another look at the world and see it completely differently, so that you might be encouraged for what you must go through in the future. One day I was out running, and I was running down a street I'd never been down before. And I turned the corner and I was running, and as I was running, I, I looked ahead and there was a man working in his yard. And the man was sitting in a chair. Now I'm out there and I'm on about the third mile, which is my death mile. I'm wanting to die. I'm angry at the world anyhow. Because I've got to do that. This old fat body's just getting older and fatter, you know, and I've got to be out there in this heat running. And I'm going down the street and there's a guy working in his yard sitting in a chair. And it's one of these chairs with these little short legs, these little beach chairs, you know? Little short legs. And he's leaning over and he's pulling out weeds, you know? And I'm running and I'm hurting and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, what a lazy bum. I cannot believe this guy can't even come out and just bend over and you know, pull up the stuff and work hard like I'm working. This bum's out here sitting in a chair in his yard. Man, I got madder as I approached him. Back was to me. I'm looking at him. as what I... And I ran past him. And I don't know what it was that made me look back, but I looked back. 
And I got the front view of him. He had no legs. He was sitting in that chair because he had no legs. And I want to tell you, just from that simple change in perspective, that man switched from being a lazy bum, in my mind, to being a hero. He could have been sitting in the house feeling sorry for himself. But here he was, out making the world better. One change in perspective. That's what God wants for us. That's why he said to John, come up here. Before you do anything, come up here. Let me show you what I see. Now, I want you to take a look at that first verse. Because that's the first point of the perspective he wants us to have. And the first verse says this. And after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the voice, and the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, what did he just say in that sentence? He said, Man's not in control, God's in control. This isn't just heaven, this is the control room. I have said to you before that our understanding of prophecy is that once God makes a prophecy, it will come to pass. But the timing and the way it comes to pass is dependent on us. Because God gives us most prophecy, the overwhelming majority of prophecy, in order that we'll take action. But the action we take is the action that will either be in cooperation with God's prophecy or against God's prophecy. It's our choice. We can't stop the prophecy. It's going to happen because God's in control. These things must take place. And our decision is, are we going to see what God's doing and hop on board, or are we going to do our own thing and be against Him? Sooner or later, all of the earth will be in subjection to Christ. And everything in heaven and everything under the earth, everything will be in heaven. The only difference will be some people agreed to it beforehand. And those are the ones that are glad that they did. These things must take place. You know, immature Christianity is that Christianity that wants God to serve us that believes that we take the initiative to call upon God so that He will rearrange the world in the way that we want it. That, by the way, is very little different than pagan religion because that's exactly what pagans think of faith. Let me give you a, 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 another picture of a diagram. Um, this is from A.J. Conyers, uh, The Eclipse of Heaven. And he has a, uh, he has a, 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 a diagram about the tendency of pagan and popular religion is to see people enlisting the gods or God in their own practical purposes. Most of us started out like this. Most of us started out saying, Oh God, I'm in trouble. Rescue me. Oh God, I want this so bad. If you'll only give me this, then I'll do this. See? But the underlying theme was, You serve me. That's the deal we'll make. I'll, I'll give you whatever you need, but I want you to arrange my world the way I like it. Now, as you grow in the faith, and as you take on the perspective of heaven, you understand that it's God that's doing the initiating. And so, you begin to pray, Oh God, use me like you want to for your purposes. That's the next slide. 
The prophetic religion understands God as the enlisting of humankind in his unknown and unforeseen purposes, even when we don't know what's going on, which is most of the time. Even when we can't have spiritual insight for the details, we can understand that God is at work here. It's God that has initiative. It's God that uses us for him. We're the servants. And we are what will build the fabric of heaven from our present place. Because what we're doing here will be a part of heaven. Okay, let me, let me talk just for a minute. Let me explain the last statement I just made. C.S. Lewis writes this in a book called The Great Divorce. And it's not about marriage. It's about the difference between hell and heaven. He says, most of us have this, this view that the earth is central in God's plan. That the world really is the, is the place where both heaven and hell come uh, in order to get established. And, and so the earth, what goes on on earth is, is central. He said, you know what? When we're dead a second or a hundred billion years, our view will be the same. That earth was not central at all. We will look back and we, if we put the earth first before heaven, we'll find out that our life on earth was simply a region of hell. If we put the earth second to heaven, we will look back and understand that the earth was the beginning of heaven for us. But the earth will be seen in the context of what God is doing in a larger sense. It is God who comes down here and creates his shadows and his images as to what he has established forever in heaven. Now, some of you have gotten that impression even before you became a Christian. You don't, you don't have to become a Christian to understand that. 500 years before Christ was born, uh, uh, Pythagoras, who was one of the greatest intellects of all time, Greek thinker, Greek, Greek mathematician, has said, I have a theory. You know, my theory is that there is this music that comes from the spheres. Remember the, remember the harps. There's this music in heaven that comes from the heavens and it stimulates man in order to, listen to this, build a better character. You see how he, in some shadowy way, was foreshadowing what we would ultimately know in a more particular and accurate way. That it is God who sends his spirit to call us into spiritual being. Emily Dickinson is one of my favorite poets. And she has a, she has a poem that I just love. And, and the first three lines are this. One need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. Do you see how we can be inhabited by the Spirit? That's what God wants us to understand. He's in control. And so this vision of heaven, it's important for us to say, God, I see now you're going to do on earth what you're going to do on earth. Give me the vision to see what you're doing so that I can be used for the purposes of heaven. That's what I want. 
And the second part of this is just as important. I want you to see the passion that is in heaven. You know, I hear people say sometimes, I'm not all that keen on going to heaven. I mean, what's it going to be like sitting up and having everybody playing a harp worshiping? I, I can't picture that. No, you can't. Because you've just missed it completely. Let me show you and, and ask you to reread some of these verses this week and try to get, try to ask God for some image, some image, some impression of what it's really like in heaven. Heaven is a place of passion. Deep, rich, thrilling, exciting passion. It really is. You know, it says in, in uh, verse 10 and 11, chapter 4, it says, The twenty-four elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying... You understand, the only thing that's theirs is the crowns. That's, they've, they've been accorded that according to their, what they've done, what, they, what their purpose is. That's theirs. They don't even want to keep it. That's passion. Say, God, I don't, I don't even want this. I don't want anything that's mine. I just want you. That's passion. Some of you think you've experienced passion and enthusiasm on this earth. You haven't got a clue. You can take your most exciting, thrilling time on this earth. It won't even hold a candle. It won't be a crumb of what you'll find in heaven. It says, Worthy art thou, art thou O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. All of life fits together here. All, we have insight into everything here. And it's all because of God. We, it's not what we know, it's who we know now. You know what it's going to be like? I don't know how many of you remember reading that classic novel, Silas Marner. Silas Marner, at the beginning of the novel, is a, is a, is a Christian who, through misunderstanding, is rejected or accused, rather, by his Christian community. And he becomes so embittered, he just goes away and becomes a, a, a miser. And he decides that he is going to fulfill life by accumulating things. And so he, he earns gold. And every night he goes to the place where he hides his gold, which is the, the, the brick hearth that he has. He pulls out the brick. He goes and gets his gold. And every night he gets gratification by counting those shiny gold pieces. Well, as the novel develops, somebody comes in and steals that gold. He is absolutely devastated and angry. As the novel develops a little bit further, there is a little orphan girl stuck in the snow who one night sees that cabin and wanders into that cabin. And Silas Marner doesn't wake up right away. And she's so cold, she goes and lays down by the fireplace. As a matter of fact, lays her head on the place where the gold used to be. And Silas Marner wakes up in the middle of the night and, and looks over the fireplace and, and the reflection of her hair and the, and, the, and the gleam of it as the fire shines through it. For a minute, he thought, somebody returned his gold. And he got all excited. And he got up. It was this girl. And then he decides, as the story develops, to 
take in this girl. To love this girl. To let this girl love him. And all of the hardness of his heart starts to break away. And all of the fullness of what he had been searching for all his life, but couldn't get through the accumulation of anything in this world, all of the fullness began to reside in his relationship to this little girl. He found riches beyond what he had imagined. That's what it's going to be like in heaven. You think, you think anything down here, the accumulation of title or rank or, or money or anything down here, is really going to fulfill? You know better than that. No, there's this relationship that's going to be the center of the universe. Heaven is about passion. It's about love. And it's about love that means so much to you that you will sacrifice anything, anything, to, to build it up and to be around it and to center your life on that person who loves you enough to die for you. That's the vision of heaven. It's not just seeing. It's, it's sensing. It's, it's ranging your life in such a way that you've got something important enough now to die for. And so you start to live like that every day. There's something so overwhelmingly important that you'll die for. You know what? I, I hear people all the time talking about living a balanced life. As if balance were the goal of everything. Well, that's okay. But I want you to know that if balance is the goal of your life, you're not a Christian, you're an Aristotelian. Aristotle said the highest in life is the golden mean. Nothing out of balance. Jesus Christ said, unless you're willing to die and follow me, you won't know the kingdom of God. Jesus was passionate. Balanced people are nice but they don't change the world. Passionate people do. You've got to have something that's worth more than your life. You've got to have a hinge that comes loose. And anything that gets in the way of that object of your love and your appreciation has got to go. When Jesus said blessed, said, blessed are those who overcome, that's what he was talking about. You go back to the vision of the church in the second and third chapter. You know what was wrong with every one of those churches. They lost their passion. They lost their passion. They didn't have the passion that they had in the first place. They didn't have the passion for truth. They didn't have the passion for purity. They didn't have the passion beyond appearances. They became lukewarm. Every one of those churches had lost its passion. I tell you what, give me a hundred people with passion in this whole world to change. That's the vision of heaven. And you know what? Just as an aside, I give you something I haven't given any other service. Just as an aside. You become that passionate person for God. You have that view of God. And I want to tell you, as you go through these battles, you go through a lot fewer of them, and you'll go through a lot quicker than those who will just gingerly try to survive. Somebody told me, this week there was a there was a uh, a special on TV, a documentary on one of the channels, not a major channel, about the Japanese and about their war with us. And in that in that 
documentary. Someone went to a Japanese officer after they had been defeated in the war. A high-ranking officer that had been in the Japanese strategy from the very beginning. And he went to this officer and he said, Why in the world did you attack us? Why in the world did you enter into this war with us? And the Japanese officer said, Because we had seen the training, the, 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 the uh, uh, films of training camps, army training camps, and we, we saw some people who were just half-heartedly going through the drills and, and using wooden sticks instead of guns and laughing. And, and he said, and we knew that the Congress had passed the, the, the bill for the draft by one vote. And then he stopped and he said, frankly, we didn't think you'd fight. Do you understand how many battles you'll avoid if the enemy knows you're willing to go down the line? You realize that was the story of Job. That the whole reason that Satan attacked him like he did is because he didn't think he'd hold up. Well, we're facing trials and tribulations that we'll, we'll begin to learn about. And I want to tell you one thing. A bully is a bully, and Satan's a bully. And if, if, if Satan thinks he can win an easy battle, he'll come after you big time. But bullies are basically cowards. And they know if they're going to be in a battle for their lives, they'll avoid you in every way they can. And I want to tell you, get passionate about heaven. Get passionate about heaven. Get pa you say to Satan, you can come against me, but you're going to be limping and hurting when you do. Because I'm not going to lay down. I'm not going to let anything get between me and what God wants accomplished in this world. Pray with me. God, give us the vision of heaven. Begin to erase the line between earth and heaven and help us, along with St. John, to see the, the power and the sovereignty that you exercise not only in heaven but on earth. And give us the hearts to see the passion that is available for us. The passion that will worship you as you deserve to be worshipped. Oh God, we pray. We pray that you would give us the vision of he heaven. Father, if there's anybody in here this morning who does not know Christ, they can never have that vision. But if they have had it in their heart that they want to see the unseen things. They want to look to those rather than the seen things. They want to look to the eternal rather than the temporal. And they know, Lord God, they'll never do that until they can come up. Let them know the way to come up is through Jesus Christ. To depend upon Him for the forgiveness of their sins because He paid the price. To ask Him into their hearts and say, Oh God, make of my life what you want. God, if there are people in here who will pray that prayer and are praying that prayer right now with me, God, give them the assurance that they're saved. And Father, for the rest of us who have prayed that prayer, we have one more. Begin to give us the vision of heaven. Begin to give us your perspective. Begin to give us the passion that comes when we've latched on to the most important thing in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let the words of Job be our benediction. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I will ask thee, and do thou instruct me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Go, pray for that eye that sees God.